Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sandsmash Radio, too hot to be comfortable. Hi, everyone. As some of you know, a series of unfortunate events is dropping today or tomorrow or sometime soon on Netflix. Time zones just really confuse me. But Gabe is a huge fan of the series and was recently on Unfortunate Associates to discuss the Baudelaire children. So if you're a fan of the series or curious as to what a lemony schnicket is, go check out Unfortunate Associates on iTunes or wherever you find good podcasts. Also, at one point in this episode, Gabe threatens to write this pitch as a play. Well, the talented bastard has since made good on that threat, and it opens on January 25th at Tuxedo Cat in Melbourne for a two-week season. Tickets can be found at bittenbyproductions.com, so if you're in the area and like this episode, or you just like feeling things, go give it a look. Or else, you know, just just wait until Carney's Dracula play is up and running. Shall we? Yeah! Yeah! All right, welcome to another episode of Movie Maintenance, where some films just need pitching. Today, we're looking at My Ideal Biopic, which, of course, is Bruce Springsteen. Like thinking there could be like other people it could be. Uh, who would it be though for who? Who else could it possibly Taylor be? Swift. Taylor oh, Swift. Yeah. But um, that biopic would have to end with us being joined in holy matrimony. So I'd have to act in a film, which not, doesn't normally end not well. too much of a leap, though. I could pull, like, a thing from, like, you know, in the first Lemony Snicket book, how Count Olaf puts on the play about the marriage, but then <laughs> makes it marriage. marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just I, could, like, I could pull that. Do you know, Count Olaf wasn't the first bloke to do that. Miss Piggy does it in a Muppet movie. Ooh. Really? Yeah, they do a musical on Broadway in like the Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, the plot is that they do uh, the two days before the musical opens, Kermit loses his memory and just becomes a waiter in a cafe. Um, and okay. it's great. Uh, and Miss Piggy builds a wedding into the final scene <laughs> and he's like, Oh, it's fake, right? And she's like, Yes. And then it's like <laughs> an actual marriage celebrant and they actually get married. Miss Piggy's a sex pest. <laughs> <laughs> like I want that on a T-shirt. <laughs> Do you, though? We haven't even gotten T-shirts out of movie maintenance yet, so that, that could oh, be the precedent. Miss Piggy's <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh. So Miss Piggy would be the other topic if you buy a pig in her sex-pest ways. That's beautiful. I can't move on. You better. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll go. Um, okay, cool. So, um... So I've written a pitch for a Bruce Springsteen movie. Okay. Um, and my pitch for a Bruce Springsteen movie is a completely shameless rip-off of Steve Jobs. 
Okay. The Danny Boyle Aaron Sorkin film. Have you guys yeah. seen it? Yeah, yeah it's absolutely um, fantastic. I loved everything about it. Yeah. And this is like this is a shameless ripoff. It's got okay. your favorite actor in it. Who's that? Seth Rogen. Oh, piss off, Tom. <laughs> He's quite uh, good at that, though. I was in a pleasant mood. Oh, well. <laughs> Tom, like, this is an audio medium. This doesn't help. He's looking a bit Steve Jobs at the moment. He's looking a bit Steve Jobs. A bit of a turtleneck thing going. And everything. Yeah. 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 It's, a, it's cold outside. It's radiating uh, a bit enough. of a dick attitude. <laughs> I'm either Steve Jobs or I'm any male character in Love Actually. Who does Seth Rogen play? Uh, he plays Wozniak. Was, was yeah. uh, He's good, though. It's like, it's really, well, basically, like, um, what, what that film does, and I- Really, really liked it because it's basically a play. Yeah, like it's. I haven't seen it, but I've heard that yeah, it's basically cool. broken into three big. It's three different events. segments, and each segment is the. It's it's behind the scenes on one major product launch. Okay, so I, I don't know because I really don't know anything about Steve Jobs. I watch yeah. it not knowing anything about Steve Jobs. But what I liked about it, and this is the same thing I really like about the Social Network, and I really like about really good biopics is that they're not just like some Oscar Beatty kind of depiction of this person's miserable life and how that eventually led them to success. They actually engage quite strongly with the characters. Like how Social yeah. Network is basically a film about a guy who cannot connect with people. He comes up with an unconventional way to do it and in the process alienates the one person who actually liked him. Yeah. Um, and Steve Jobs is, in a similar way, it's kind of about a guy who is such a genius and such a dick and only cares about his own achievements and his own legacy, not realising that his real legacy is his daughter who he's shunning the whole time. This film is about him com- coming to terms with that. All right, cool. So Basically, well, not not cool I, for her, but cool. Yeah, well, no, it works out in the end. It's a happy ending. It's got a got a bit of heart, mate. Oh, you you like it? I'll check it out. I like but Danny Boyle. Jeff Daniels is in it. You said Danny Boyle yeah, directed he's good. it. Yeah, is Jeff Danny Daniels just playing it. the same character he's been playing for like the last ten years? I'm not going to say no. Okay, I'm <laughs> okay with it. Yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> you know, it's uh, Jeff Daniels saying Aaron Sorkin dialogue. So Kate yeah. Winslet's in it too, right? Yeah, yeah. And Fastbender is great. He's so. great everything though. Yeah, exactly. So you know, why why not watch? Like, what have you seen him shit in? I know what you you could say. No, because he's all right in that. No, oh, is he? X Men. Right? X Men Apocalypse. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to say. He's okay. Um, what's his shit in? Oh no, no. no yeah. You ready? Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Jonah Hex. Hex. Oh. <laughs> I have not seen that. And it's I'm garbage. Not going to. It's abysmal. It's one of the worst films in the world, and Michael. I've heard not, not even Michael Fassbender can save it. Wow, that is saying something. Yeah. It's it's Josh On Brolin. Which note, I'm so concerned about Assassin's Creed. I was like, this will be the year for like, you know, good uh, good video game adaptations with Warcraft and Assassin's Creed. Then I saw the first trailer. I was like, no, Assassin's Creed looks like a video game movie. And then Warcraft came out and I haven't seen it, but by all accounts, it's, it's not great. It's grim. I didn't even but realize they're making an Assassin's Creed movie. Oh, they've yeah, been talking they about and it. And it was so- the director of um, Snowtown and Macbeth, uh, Justin Kurtzel. Aussie guy. Snowtown. Yeah, the Australian one. It is one of my least favorite movies. I haven't seen it. Macbeth, his Macbeth is really good. Is it okay. It's, 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 it's Fassbender right? and yeah. um, Cotillard. Who are both in Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed. She's in it, really. Yeah. She plays the... It's, when, it's interesting because Fassbender's been like... Kind of he's been attached degree. to Assassin's Creed for years and years and years, like kind of before he really became pretty big as he is now. Yeah. So I just always thought it'd be one of those things that he was just like, nah, I'm not going to do Don't it anymore. kind of love it though when like, you know, very serious actors like do something wacky, like stick to something like that. Yeah. Like, I just really, really I'll, I'll watch this. it. I look forward to it. I haven't seen the trailer though. I hope paper mache head in the movie Frank. I haven't seen Frank. But... Just he, again, yeah. Michael Fassbender being fucking loopy. Good. good, Fine, it works for him. Sign me up. So far, so good. Is Fassbender playing Bruce Springsteen? I was just thinking <laughs> that. I was like, you know who would make a really respectable Springsteen would be actually Fassbender. He'd be a little bit Irish, though. And German yeah. and yeah, he'd get up there and be like, oh, do you want what? I'm going to sing this- you a song right now. <laughs> the one thing about this film is that, like, it, it covers, it, it, it covers, like, Springsteen from 23 to, like, 50. Okay. Yeah. So... Would you do a like a Bob Dylan? I'm, I'm 
Best Man no, is too hard. I, I, think, I think it needs. I think this film needs a grounding, sort of a grounding personality. Like I wouldn't do it like. That oh no no. So when I say different people playing it, would you have maybe like two actors? So an older spring. Nah, I think I think scene? I just need one actor. I and think it's one of those things. Deageify and age him up. Yeah, and you know someone sort of in the middle where it's like you don't really look twenty two, but you'll pass. You don't really look fifty, but you'll pass. Now you can age you can age him up pretty well. Particularly if you're Fast Man is a little old though. Yeah, he's about four. Yeah, he would. How old is he actually? I don't even know. Fastbender, he like. Late thirties, maybe. Okay. Oscar Isaac. Yeah, no, he's a it. bit too Egyptian, and he's probably not good enough to um, pull off the role. They need to be able to sing too, right? Yeah, he does oh, sing yeah. at one point. Um, it's not a big aspect of the film, but it is there. See, how much could you age up, or do you just hold off doing this movie for? Brad Pitt wanted to play Springsteen, but again, can't play twenty-two. <laughs> no, <laughs> Here's my thing for you. you do you hold off? Give it, give it, give it five, maybe, maybe ten years, mm-hmm. and get um, Obi from Hail Caesar, who's just been cast as Han Solo. To play Springsteen, I don't know if he's so good. That I've seen Hal says that he's really good in it. I don't know <laughs> if he's so good though that you're like, let's hold off ten years on this movie. No, also, no. I need to see. I need whoever it is has to be really fucking good because this is like like Steve Jobs. It's a real actors showcase. Like this is the kind of script where it, look, it's it's basically a play. And yep. full disclosure, I'm probably actually going to write this as a play. Yep. And I did start out writing it as a play and I kind of struggled with it. And then I saw Steve Jobs and I was like, I'm ripping off everything that did and like sort of reconfiguring it. So it's, yeah, it's if you're going to rip off from someone, show, but rip off from Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. I, but <laughs> back you can to do your things. things. Oscar Isaac. Yeah. No, no, no. Bruce Springsteen. <sighs> he can sing though. Adam Driver. No. <laughs> Springsteen's kind of, Oscar Isaac's quite stocky. Yeah. Springsteen's like quite tall and lean. Not now. Like now he's quite stocky. When he was younger, like, he was very. He was famously quite skinny he's, and rangy. He's, yeah. he's fast bender. I think you I think fast bender. Age of fast bender. I think fast bender is a really respectable choice. Well, with technology and stuff. Hey, they. How good was the deagifying of Downey Jr.? Oh yeah, yeah true. But I think true. Gabe, you pointed this out. If you're going to watch that for an extended period of time, was it you that said that to me? Oh, probably not. Someone did. Someone was like, "Yeah, but imagine if you're watching that an extended period of time. Are you going to buy it? Are you?" I don't know. You've already bought your ticket, so yes. <laughs> Not buy a ticket. Are you going to sit there and be like, yep, all right. Well, like I said, you've already bought your ticket, so bad luck. All right. Fuck you, Tom. <laughs> I don't look, I, I think. <clears throat> I think Fastbender would pass for now. I think he'd be no, not even pass. I think he'd be really good. I don't hear him and think, "Oh fuck yeah," but I hear him and think, "Yeah, no, that he'd be good." I would, I would watch anyone's Bruce. I would watch Adam Sandler's Bruce Springsteen, but I would definitely. Well, I actually probably wouldn't. No, yeah, you no, would. No, I, no, I would. No, but I don't think I would. No, you would though. Okay. I, but you don't understand how much I hate Adam. Yeah, Sandler. but you would. Just the so level you could rage at which I hate it. Adam Sandler is rivaled only by which the only by the level to which I love Bruce Springsteen. So I got I got there in the end. But right. like yeah, I I loathe that man. You would still watch it though because you're a glutton for self-punishment. And that. Yeah. You're a masochist. You're no, a tall, just... gangly masochist. But we can probably call it Fastbender and, and and skip along. Let's say Fastbender for yeah. now. Um, Unless we okay, come up cool. with someone better. Yeah. So pretty much um I'm this is a story about ambition to me. And this is a story about what ambition is worth and about what it gets you and whether in the end wanting everything, you know, wanting to be great and wanting that above all else is kind of worthwhile or if you sort of need more in your life. And it's it sort of uh, – it'll make more sense as I explain it to you. Okay. But basically um, – so a little bit of context, and I'll sort of explain any like little factual things that come up as it goes on, but a little bit of context. So in 73, so Springsteen like, you know, started out in New Jersey. He was, um, 
he had like a little band, you know, they started to pick up him in the E Street Band. They were famous for these really rollicking, wild improvisational gigs in the late 60s, early 70s. And pretty much he got picked up by Columbia in about 72. And the idea was that he was going to be like the new Bob Dylan. They were saying, oh, you know, you're going to be like the new Bob Dylan. You've got these kind of poetic, crazy lyrics and things like that. That's kind of what we're going for. So he released two albums and neither of them went very well. They're both actually great albums, uh, Greetings from Asprey Park and um, The Wild, The Innocent, The East Street Shuffle. But neither of them like really set the world on fire. Yeah. And so when it came to recording his third album, he had one more album on his contract and Columbia were pretty much like, it's this or nothing. Like, do this or you're out. And so this is kind of when we're going to come in. We're coming in in 73. The stakes have never been higher. He's halfway into recording this album that is his make or break. And if he doesn't succeed in getting this album right, things are going to fall apart. The structure of the film is, again, blatantly ripping off Steve Jobs. I'm choosing five moments set before the release of five of his albums. Cool. So basically it's just one scene. Set, and they could they could vary between 20 minutes to half an hour, depending. Yep. Each one set between the release of one of his albums, and they'll be linked in between by montages and little bits and pieces kind of like really ripping off Steve Jobs. I cannot stress enough how much I'm ripping off Steve yeah. Jobs. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to do it anyway. Hey, so uh, you've, been, you've been upfront about it. You haven't been like, exactly. this no, is I'm my not, original idea. I'm not pretending. Like I am, this is an act of blatant plagiarism. <laughs> I really hope you understand this and you understand how little I give a shit. <laughs> anyway. Aaron so, Sutton's going to find you. Ah. Uh, Okay, I get to hang out with Aaron Sorkin. He might be beating me into a bloody pulp, but whatever. I still get to say I met him. <laughs> what, good luck him finding Gabe? Yeah. Wily fucker. <laughs> um, Jump on a motorbike and just fucking take off. <laughs> <laughs> Sorkin's like listening to this right now, just fist clenching. It just comes for me. I um, can't get him. He's going to walk and talk your ear off, mate. <laughs> Fine. Fine. If he talks as well as he writes, I have no problem with that. Okay, so... Start in an apartment in 1973, and I'm creating a fictional character at this point who is Bruce Springsteen's fictional girlfriend named Wendy, which is the song of the girl in Born to Run because I'm not very imaginative. So, no, um, nice. Wendy yeah. and Bruce have a little apartment in New York, and Wendy is by herself in the apartment. Now, basically, Bruce has been in the studio for days upon days upon days upon days, and Wendy, like, we like Wendy. She gets this. Like, she knows what she was signing up for. She understands that this album is hugely important to him, but they've cleared tonight to spend a night with just the two of them. Wendy's, like, got some wine, you know, got a couple of records, you know, their dinner's in the oven, it's all going to be really good. And there's a knock at the door. And in comes Mike Apple. Mike Apple was Springsteen's manager and producer in the early 70s. And Apple comes in and he's, like, you know, talking to Wendy. And Wendy's like, why, why, are, you, why are you here, Mike? Like, what's, what's going on? And Mike's like, oh, is, is Bruce around? And Wendy's like, what is going on, Mike, this night? We've cleared this night. You see him every day in the studio. This is just for the two of us. What do you want? And Mike's like, I just, I, I really need to talk to him. And Wendy's like, look, you know, I just, just go away. You can talk to him tomorrow. And Mike's like, look, I'm here as a friend. And Wendy's like, if you're here as a friend, you wouldn't be here. Like, this is his night. Get out. And Mike's like, Wendy, look, things are bad. Things are really bad. The stu- I've just got off the phone with the studio. John Hammond, who was the head of Columbia at the time, he is and losing. Jurassic Park. Yeah, and that, that too. <laughs> um, he is losing his mind. Like, you know, he's, they've poured time and money. The album's gone over schedule. It's gone over time. It's gone over budget. He's in that studio every day and he's not showing us any demos. He's not showing us anything. We need, I I need him to throw me a bone here and give me a demo to show to Hammond so he doesn't shut down production and cancel Springsteen's contract. And when he's like, look, you, you know, he needs a night off. Like, you know, he needs a night to just breathe. And Apple's like, look, I know he goes, I'm going to try to keep it as quick as possible, but I need to talk some sense into him. I'm going to go out and get some cigarettes, but uh, please don't lock me out because this is really important. 
So he leaves and Wendy's kind of alone in the apartment and she's strutting back and forward and like, you know, trying to kind of figure out what she's going to say because she knows how stress Springsteen is. And she puts on an album, which is one of his early albums. Like she puts on Greetings from Asbury Park, Blinded by the Light starts playing. She's listening to it. The door bursts open. Bruce Springsteen at 23 walks in. He goes, why the fuck are you playing that? Mm-hmm. He goes, the last thing I want to hear right now is myself. And like knocks off the knocks off the needle, kind of takes a deep breath. And he goes, I'm, I'm sorry. He goes, it's just been... She's been a long, long, arduous day. And he goes, and I don't, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to talk about this. I just, that's it. You know, what's going on? And when he's like, do you like, just tell me what's up. And Bruce pretty much says, look, you know, I just, I'm in there day after day after day. And it's just not sounding right. And I, I know it can be good. I know it can be great. I know this is going to be something special, but I just can't seem to figure it out. And the band is just not pulling their weight. And anyway, look, you know, I've, I've spoken about this enough. Let's just drop it. Tonight's for you and me. Let's, and Apple comes in. And so Apple tells Springsteen and Springsteen starts flipping out. He's just like, what the fuck? You're bringing this to me. It's your job. You're my manager. You're meant to be in there. You're meant to be helping me. You're meant to be like making sure the studio gives me the time I need. And Apple's like, I've been doing that. I've been doing that for weeks on end, covering your fucking ass. And meanwhile, you can't even give me one demo. Like one demo just to tie the moment. Springsteen's like, the demos aren't ready. They are not ready. You'll have one when it is ready. And Apple kind of keeps just pushing him, saying, no, no, just like, give me something. Hammond's coming in tomorrow to hear the demos. You need to give me something. And Springsteen's like, see, you just don't get it. You know, you're a manager. You know, you just kind of want to cling on to us artists, like, you know, to get a bit of the glory. But you actually don't understand how much goes into this. To which Apple's like, you arrogant fucking prick. (laughs) What? You you, You think I don't understand? You don't understand how much we have to go through to put up with you fucking pricks. The argument kind of intensifies, at which point there's a knock in the door and in bursts Steve Van Zandt. Now, Steve Van Zandt was one of Springsteen's early bandmates, backup guitarist, and is famously like just a ball of irreverent energy. And Van Zandt bursts in, and he is going off on this ridiculous monologue about how he was like down in uh, down on 52nd Street in this bar, and he was in there with one of his buddies, and they went in, and they were thinking, you know, we're going to kind of play up the band thing to like pick up some girls, and they went in there, and they were chatting to these girls, and he was saying, oh, you know, I, uh, I'm a bit of a producer, because uh, Van Zandt was kind of producing this album at the time, Van Zandt's like, yeah, I'm a bit of a producer for, uh, for a guy who's been called the future of rock and roll, and you know, so I'm a bit of a big deal, and the girl's like, oh yeah, who's that? And Van Zandt's like, it's Bruce goddamn Springsteen, to which she goes, oh, Bruce Springsteen used to go up with Diane Lazito. And he goes, the one and only. And so she throws a drink in his face and says, give that to Bruce Springsteen. And so, and so basically there's like this big sort of like rambling monologue about this ridiculous story. And Van Zandt keeps going and going and going. And Springsteen's just watching him. And then Springsteen just cuts him off mid-sentence. Goes, are you fucking drunk? Are you fucking drunk? We're recording tomorrow. And you come in here drunk off your head. Hammond is coming in the studio and you want to turn up with a hangover. And Van Zandt just goes, after everything, come off it. Like, fucking come off it. You are, you, are, you are a slave driver. You are driving us to the bone day after day in there. You know, why can't we just go back to what we used to do? Why can't we get on stage and have some fun? He goes, we're, Springsteen's like, we're recording. We're not on stage. And uh, Van Zandt's like, well, that's it. What you're creating isn't the E Street Band. What we, what we do, and Springsteen just cuts him off and goes, what was that? And... Van Zandt's like, well, what, what we do is, he goes, yeah, we. Who's we? Ooh. Steve? <laughs> and Steve's like, we, the E Street Band. And Springsteen goes, yeah, my, my hired backup. Oh. Van Zandt's like, what, what do you mean? And meanwhile, Apple's like, Bruce, just back, back down, back mm. down. 
<laughs> and Bruce goes, we're not the Beatles. We're not the Rolling Stones. We are Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Bands. I could get rid of any of you oh. and hire someone else. What, you think you write the music? You think you bring a lot to this table? You're either with me or you're not. And if you don't like it, you can walk out that door. But if you honestly think, you look me in the eye right now, Stephen, you honestly tell me that you think I'm not going to make it. And Van Zandt's like, you can't just decide to be a genius, Bruce. And Springsteen goes, yeah, but do you honestly think I'm not going to prove it? Do you honestly think I'm not going to get out there and prove it to the world? If you think that, walk out right now. Walk out that door right now. You're either with me or you're not. And if you're with me, you do it my way. And Van Zandt looks at him and goes, I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, cool. And walks out. Springsteen turns to Mike Apple, who's been listening. And Springsteen goes, you go to Hammond. And you tell him, I'll have a demo for him in a week. But he waits a week. And Apple goes, okay. And he walks out. Springsteen takes a deep breath and he turns to Wendy. And he goes, okay, where were we? And Wendy's kind of watching him. She's like, this is who you are, isn't it? And he goes, what do you mean? And she goes, well, the band, the, you know, the music, the ambition, all of that will always come first. Will always come first at the expense of everything else. Like at the expense of your friendship, everything. You don't care about the rest of us when it comes to this. And he goes, I do, but you knew from the start, this is what you're getting into. The music always comes first. And she goes, yeah. She goes, but that's just something that like guys with guitars say. You actually mean it. That will always come first. And she kind of looks at him and she goes, I don't think I can deal with that. And she says to him, I really, really hope it's a good record. And she walks out. And as she walks out, Springsteen stands there alone and we pull in on his face. And for the first time, we see doubt. We see fear. And we see him realizing that he's alienating everyone, pushing everyone away. And for the first time, we can see in his face him starting to realize if what he's creating is not that good, is it going to be worth it? And he slumps down in the chair and he drinks, staring into space, terrified, wondering if this is all going to pay off. And as he does, the glorious first notes of Born to Run answer that question definitively. (laughs) And we burst into a montage. We see the news covers. We see everything. We see Born to Run going to the top of the charts. We see Bruce Springsteen is now the most popular singer, you know, future rock and roll, all of that. Everything's huge. Cut to a bar in 1978. Mike Apple sitting in the bar. He looks drawn, worried, on edge. He's got a drink in his hand. Springsteen comes in, sees him, and it is tense. It is very, very tense. And Springsteen sits across from him. And this is when we learn that in the intervening years between 75, when Born to Run was released, and 78, there were some technicalities in Springsteen's contract with Mike Apple that meant Mike Apple owned the rights to all Springsteen's music, all the publishing rights. Oh, wow. And has since then exercised the right and is barring Springsteen from recording anything. Oh. And Springsteen is Furious! Wow. Have you got he a Mike is, Apple in mind, Gabe? Like a, I don't at this like point. No. That could be an Oscar a... Isaac, actually. Oh, okay. He kind of looks like him. All right. He, okay, yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 I, if Oscar I can put Oscar Bender. Isaac in a movie, um, I fucking will. Let's so, say Oscar Isaac Oscar is Isaac? Like cool. uh, Sorry, Mike, <laughs> Mike, Mike, <laughs> uh, uh, Mike Apple. Apple. Yeah, yeah, the other one. So he's stolen, um, basically stolen. Basically stopping him from recording and owns the rights to his music and is taking the royalties. So Springsteen confronts him. And Apple has, Apple has royally yeah. fucked him over. So Springsteen has finished his masterpiece, but he couldn't follow it up. 
So these guys have been grappling in court for months, and now they're sitting down in this bar to hash it out and settle it. Bruce is furious. He isn't holding back. He's ripping into Apple, calling him all kinds of things. Apple, however, believes he's done the right thing. And he tells Bruce, I didn't screw you over. I taught you a lesson. And he says to Bruce, how are you where you are? How did you get to where you got to? What made you go from being a nobody to being a somebody? You couldn't have got here without my support. You could not have got here without me getting you your first audition with John Hammond. You could not have got here without me producing your music and without me taking a chance on you. What you don't seem to realize is that people who are successful don't succeed in a vacuum. They need help. They need support and they need people to believe in them. But in your mind, it's all you. It's all your hard work. And that all would have been for nothing if you didn't have people who believed in you. And what you don't seem to understand is that your band have all given up chances for careers, chances for lives, chances for everything because they believed in you. I did the same thing. John Landau, his other producer, did the same thing. We all did that and you have no appreciation. It's all about you and you give us no credit in this. I'll just say this because, Gabe, I've read a lot of uh, your stuff. Yep. And normally when you're hitting the heart, you're hitting it, you know, in the, in the back end of the story. You've gone early. More's coming. Oh, oh Jesus! Can I, coming. can I just say, I'm that that first kind of tirade at the start. While you while you while we have hit this point, yep. That first tirade, there were bits in it where I was like, "That'd be in the trailer. That'd be in the trailer. Mm. That'd be well, in yeah, the trailer." As he was pitching it, um, as he probably got like halfway through the, you know, we'll call that the first block of the movie. Um, I thought, has he gone too big too early? Like this is like really big confrontational stuff, and it's happening like from the get go. But it but, works. But it works because then the next one is bigger again. Now yeah. he can't play his music. And I, I think the reason it works is because of how it ends with Wendy. Yeah. It's just, just oh, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. Good. Yeah, proceed. Yep. Good. Sorry. Yeah, continue. Okay. So, um, and Bruce is having none of it. Basically, he's like, without my, ta- without my talent and hard work, you would have had nothing to, you know, cast your lot in with. You couldn't have done it without me. So you're the one who should be thanking me. And Apple says, yeah, sure. Maybe now that's true. At this point, now that you're famous and successful and rich, but uh, not at the start. You couldn't have got your start without us. So, yeah, I deserve a cut. You won't give me credit, so I took my cut. Bruce starts getting more and more sanctimonious. He starts ranting on, how dare you ruin my career to try to teach me a lesson? How old are you? What right do you have? Apple says it's obviously a lesson he had to learn because Bruce clearly isn't getting it. And Bruce starts to lose it. He grabs Apple. He's yelling in his face and Apple snaps back. You have no right to attack me from your high horse as if you're so honorable. I never would have had to exercise the rights in the contract if you hadn't tried to replace me. Silence. Bruce lets him go and sits. Breathing heavily, Apple says, yeah, I'm not dumb. I know you were trying to put Landau in instead of me. And after everything I did for you, you want to swap me out for a goddamn sycophant because I challenge you. Well, I'm sorry, but it doesn't work that way. Not after I made your fucking career. Landau isn't a sycophant, Bruce says. That's not why I want to go with him instead. I just work better with him. That's it. And for that, I am sorry, Mike. I should have handled it better. Damn right you should have, Mike says. But you have to understand, Bruce says, it was business. You turned it ugly. Mike stares at him. Nothing I said was untrue, he replies. You deserve every bit of this. You're so tied up with how much of a genius you are that you don't care about the people who helped you become one. You'd abandon any of us to get what you want. Yeah, I will, Bruce says. Especially the ones who get in my way. What's your endgame, Mike? What? I'll let you go back in after all of this and we go on like before. It's not going to happen. He leans forward. He says, the fact is, you know as well as me, 
that this can't last. So you can tie me up legally for now. But sooner or later, forces will move against you. People want what I have more than they want you to get your petty little idea of justice. So when all is said and done, you will lose, and I will go on to make better and better music and become greater and greater, and you will be no part of it. So you can say whatever you want and claim your petty little victory now, call me what you want, but I'm beloved and you're an obstacle. So whatever happens, I've still won. That's in the trailer. I'm (laughs) beloved and you're an obstacle. That's in the trailer. With that, Bruce gets up, walks out, leaves Apple kind of sitting alone, realizing, yeah, he's won. Have you got a Lando, by the way? No, Lando's not in in it. No, never appears. You never see see it. Do you have a Van Sant? No, I don't. Do they only appear in that one scene? No, he comes back in this next one. It's going to say because you could go somewhere. Just while you think about who that is, is Landau the same as is it John Landau, the film producer? I think so. Yeah. Okay. He was a critic, and then he became a music producer and a manager and a film producer, film producer as well. I think. Okay. Yeah. Because John Landau produced like Titanic and Avatar and Western correct. James I think it's, I think same it's the same wow, guy. Okay, cool. um, I could be wrong, but I think it might be James Cameron. So, could play him. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> so we in it, we have another two years um, in montage. We see the lawsuit lift. We see the darkness on the edge of town, the album come out. We see that kick ass. We see it followed by the river of which the single Hungry Heart comes out, which becomes Bruce's biggest single. We see him getting higher and higher and higher. So we return to Bruce in 1981. So you don't do the river album as a one no. that, Ah, I no. like it. I like it. So we skip the river and we return to Bruce in 1981. And he's sitting in a studio listening to something on headphones. And Steve Van Zandt bursts in. Still the same, still energetic, still irrepressible, and they chat, and they crack some beers, and they have a drink, and it's, it's nice. They have a bit of banter, a bit of talk, and we can tell now Bruce is a little bit more relaxed. He's not quite as intense as he used to be. He's got less to prove, and he's a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more giving, a little bit more willing to hear kind of what Van Sant has to say. And as he does this, he says, hey, I need your help. And Steve's a bit confused. He's like, what? And Bruce's like, look, I've finished these demos, and I'm honestly not sure what to do with them. He's trying to work out the arrangements for the bands and who's going to, when he's going to record them and who he's going to put in there, but he's struggling. Steve's a bit surprised that Bruce has like come to him, but, but he agrees. And so he puts on the headphones and we kind of fade away as Bruce kind of sits there like watching as Steve kind of listens and like takes in, the, takes in all the demos. And he finishes them and he's thinking and he puts down the headphones and he's frowning and Bruce is immediately on edge. Bruce's like, what is it? Van Zandt kind of gets up, cracks another beer and he's thinking. And Bruce is like, it's, it's shit, isn't it? Like, it, it, it's shit. This is pointless. We need to scrap it. We need to get rid of it. And Steve's like, no, it's, it's great. It's really great. And Bruce is like, then, then what? And Steve goes, I. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think you need to release these as they are, just without the band. Just the acoustic tracks as they are, the demos. Okay. And Springsteen's like, but yeah, but they're demos. And fans are like, yeah, but they're brilliant. They're, they're focused, they're dark, they're amazing. The band is only going to muddy this. These Some songs benefit from the band, these ones don't. Bruce is stunned because he's never recorded solo or acoustic at this point. And he's like, well, maybe it's time to try it. And Steve says, look, because Bruce is a bit like disconcerting. He's like, well, what's the band going to say if I tell them I want to go solo for this one? And Steve's like, look, we, we, we do understand. Like, this time you have to go it alone. And it'll be fresh, it'll be different. It'll be exactly what you need. That's a great album. And Bruce is stunned. And after everything, he's kind of really taken aback by this sudden humility from Van Zandt, from his exuberant, crazy, over-the-top friend, his like, probably most entitled friend when it comes to the band. And Bruce kind of looks at him and he thanks him. But not just for this. He says, like, for everything. Like, everything over the years. And Van Zandt smiles and goes to leave. And as he does, he pauses. And he goes, just one of those songs that you recorded, one of those demos... One of those I think you should uh, hang on to and release with the band. What was it? That um, Born in the USA? <laughs> Cut to another montage. Nebraska comes out. You know, beloved. Like, beloved and critically acclaimed. Bruce is now taken very seriously. Yeah. Followed by Born in the USA. His biggest album. Mm. Huge. It goes stratospheric. It has, like, I think five singles in, like, the top ten. It's everywhere. Bruce is now a bona fide megastar. He gets married to Julian Phillips. Uh, a young. He's 35, so he's, like, fairly... You know, he's an older bachelor, but he gets married to this like, young model, Julian Phillips. And he goes a bit quiet for a while. And we come to 1987. We pick up with him in his hometown of New Jersey. It's twilight. And he's walking along the boardwalk at New Jersey in Asbury Park with a woman named Patty Sialfa. Patty Sialfa was one of his backup singers at the time. And they're walking along. They're about to start recording on the new album. And they're walking along and Patty's like a buzz. She's like, oh, everyone's really excited. Everyone, I, I think at this point, this was her first album with him. And so she's really excited. She's like, oh, you know, everyone's really excited to see what you come up with. You know, how are you going to top Born the USA? All of this, how are you going to top it? And Bruce kind of seems a bit despondent. Patty's like needling him a bit, needling him. Is this, sorry, and is this the fourth block? This is the fourth block, yeah. Penultimate block. Penultimate block, yeah. <clears throat> Patty's kind of needling him and Bruce is like, it's not going to be another Born in the USA. Like, it's not. And Patty's like, you know, you're being a bit hard on yourself there. You know, I mean, you, you think that, but, you know, it always, you're always harder on yourself than anyone else. Um, it'll be good. And Bruce's like, no, it's not meant to be another Born in the USA. And he starts to open up a bit. And he says, you know, after Born in the USA came out, he, he really thought he had everything. Like he had a band full of his friends. He had, he's a famous, beloved musician. He got married. But it just hasn't been that easy. He can't seem to get on the same page as Julian. And it's eating him up. Like, he doesn't think this marriage is working. And it's all he can think about. And because it's all he can think about, it's all he can write about. And this new album that he's written that's going to be his big follow-up to Born in the USA is actually just an album of really sad songs about his marriage falling apart. And he's like, people are going to hate it. 
It's going to come out and everyone's going to hate it. They're expecting another Born in the USA and it's just not going to happen. And yet here's the thing. He can't bring himself to care. He's not bothered by the fact that he's not releasing another Born in the USA. He's bothered by the fact that he realizes he's going to release something that will alienate people and he just doesn't care anymore. And they reach the carnival part of Asprey Park. And they stand there looking at the wheel. It's getting darker. And Patty's like, well, the thing is, your genius was always in writing about things that mattered to you. And that's what people want. You know, you're, you're changing. You're getting older. But he's scared. He's really scared. Because what if he's losing his passion? He used to be so driven, so driven by ambition. Now he just feels burnt out. And there are no more goals for him to kick. And he spent so long focused on his career that he's scared he's missed his chance for actual human connection. That he rushed into this marriage thinking it was something he had to do. And it's not actually working out. And now he's too far gone. He's at a point where he doesn't know how to connect with other people. And so Patty tells him this story. And I haven't quite figured out the specifics, but it's giving me like this rambling, funny story about this incident she had when she was a teenager with her parents where she wanted something and she got in a fight with them. And it's funny and it's kooky and, it's, and he, Bruce starts laughing as he hears it. And it kind of goes along. It's all about how, you know, she was kind of constantly chasing this thing she wanted to the point of absolute absurdity. And it's like this really minor thing. And she, you know, tells this whole story and how she eventually got it. And she finally says, look, the point is, in the end, you can only do what is right for you and what makes you happy. And no matter what people say or what they expect from you, you can only be who you are. But the thing is that who we are actually changes. And the trick is learning to accept that and become the person who life makes you. Ride the wave because otherwise it's going to drown you. Night has fallen. The lights of the boardwalk are reflected off the water, illuminating the two of them. Together they're standing there looking at the wheel. We cut to another montage, and we see Bruce breaks up with his wife, marries Patty C. Alpha, and sort of retires. He releases intermittent music, but it's not the same as like in the 70s and 80s. He releases a couple of albums and a couple of singles over the course of the 90s, but he settles down. He has kids. He breaks up the E Street Band, and Bruce Springsteen disappears into the 90s. Every now and then he turns up, but by and large, he's, <laughs> yeah, by and large, he's busy having kids and raising a family and just like having a normal life. Have you thought about who plays Patty? I haven't yet, no. Um, she's redhead. Think about that. Um, Maybe probably Jessica. Leslie. Jessica Chastain? Yeah, actually, yeah. They yeah, kind of look similar. Yeah. yeah, they look very similar. I don't know. This might be completely irrelevant, but he doesn't look a lot like him at all. But um, Joe Gilgan could play Van Sant. <laughs> yeah, he could. <laughs> Van Sant's kind of shorter and stockier. Who did you but say? I, Joe Gilgan. What's he in? Preacher. Preacher. Oh, he's Cassidy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like Joe Gilgan being in things. Um, it's good in Lockout. You both just kind of looked at me like, you're a fuckhead, Tom. <laughs> Why would you suggest that? Get out of here. Don't so come back. we come to 2001 and we get a glimpse of Bruce's new life. Like now he's pushing 50 and, you know, he's quite settled. He's at home. You know, he wakes up, talks to Patty to have a chat. He gets his kids up for school. We see him having breakfast with his family and he's just living this normal, simple life. And then they turn on the TV and we see the Twin Towers coming down. Okay. And we sort of start to see his reaction to this. We see him sitting there in his chair, staring at it, completely transfixed. Everything's happening around him, and he's just transfixed by what has happened here. And he's trying to get his head around it. And so we might follow him for a bit, sort of in a few different social situations where he's talking to family and friends. Like, you know, maybe they sit down their kids to discuss it with their kids. And Patty's, like, explaining to them, and Bruce just can't engage. Like, he's just sitting there just playing through his head over and over and over again. And he can't seem to figure it out. And he's just watching the news over and over and over and just like fixating. He's not talking to anyone about it, but something is really sticking in his head about this. And so he goes out for a drive to clear his head. And he goes out and he's in the car and he's driving along and he stops at a red light 
and a car pulls up next to him. And he looks next to him, there's a man in the car. The man's just looking at him. The man says, we need you right now. Light turns green, the man drives off. Okay. Bruce kind of sits there thinking. And he goes back home and he sits down and he stares at his guitar. And he stares at it. And as he reaches out to pick it up, he stops. And he goes to the phone and he calls Van Zandt. And he says, I need you guys. I need you guys to come back for this. I've got something I want to do and I need you back for it. And Van Zandt's a little, it's a little bit frosty. And Bruce is like trying to explain he wants the E Street band back together. And Steve is like, you don't need us. You know, you disbanded us in the 90s. You don't need us anymore. And Springsteen goes, for this, I do. I, I really do. Please, Steve. So we cut to backstage at a concert. Bruce, and, Bruce is talking to Patty and he's a little bit nervous. And Patty kind of kisses him and says, no, it's going to be all right. So he walks out on stage and he's in front of a huge audience. And he looks around and he starts talking. He's very considered and he tells them that they've all gone through something together as a country and they have to heal together. The band joins him on stage and he bursts into the rising, which was his anthem about 9-11 that came out afterwards. And like he wrote and became sort of the anthem of the time as everyone was trying to kind of get their heads around it. And it's this beautiful, inspirational song, and he starts singing it, and the whole band joins in. It's all about being lost but persevering and getting through it and working it out anyway. And as he sings it, he looks around. There's his wife on stage, his beloved wife. There's his band made up of his friends all there with him, supporting him in this moment. There's his audience loving him, adoring him, everyone helping each other heal, and this is who he has become. He didn't get there alone. And as the guitars burst in and Bruce looks around at the people who let him be this and who love him for who he is – he smiles and we smash the credits. It's pretty beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> She's kind of a bit overwhelmed over there. That's no, pretty good. Oh, pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's pretty beautiful. You're, I, I'll tell you what, listening to Gabe <clears throat> pitch is just one of the most passionate things I think I've ever <laughs> witnessed in my life. I'm welling up a little bit. Oh, <laughs> this is a bit of, oh, bit of this. It's, you're an engaging son of a bitch. Thank you for being you. Uh, you do have a talent or two. Oh, no, there's a fucking lot of heart in there. It's a lot. Like, it's, look, I mean, there's, I probably Can't, want. not okay over here. <laughs> <laughs> she wants, she wants off. really struggling. Leave me alone. Um, Gabe, is that the first, like, is that the only time, that, that is the only time in the movie that we see him perform? Yeah, it is. I don't Which want to really show the end. Yeah. I was yeah. going to ask you, um, are you using his music throughout the film? Yeah, in between during so, the montages. Like, I so, have, do you have songs picked out? Yes. So yep. first, obviously the first montage between uh, the Born, Born to Run, Run and Darkness yep. segment would be Born to Run. Great. Yep. Second montage, I'm thinking, because I, look, I'm to be honest, I'm still, if I do do this as a play, which I think I probably will, I do want to sort of maybe tighten up a couple of things in those in those other bits. I'm pretty happy with the first part, but the rest of there's a little bit more I want to do with it. But um second part, after the second part I'm thinking either something in the night or darkness on the edge of town. Cool. Because like something a bit somber, something a bit because that's a moment where I want the audience to be like, Bruce is kind of a dick. Like I sort of want you to see the first part and be like, I get it. Like I I get it. He's driven. You know? I get it, yeah. he's driven. And then the second time you're like I think he's kind of an arsehole. See, I think I think a good like a good the measure of a good biopic is something that doesn't show. Like you look at it doesn't show. That's not a word. Shy away from that. Like you look at <laughs> the difference between Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle film, and Jobs, the Ashton Kutcher which one, I in which they see. show him as this lovable genius who's just really clever and trying to get ahead. Or like Social Network, Zuckerberg is portrayed as a as kind of a dick. Yeah, he's a absolutely. Dick. Mm. 
And like, and Springsteen was like, this is all, like all of that stuff is true. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously I've sort of like fictionalized elements and kind sure. of, you know, created scenes that probably never happens. But like yep. all of that early stuff with him, like driving the band, the band to the absolute bone and alienating all of them. That's all true. That all happens. Yep. When he got given the first pressing of Born to Run, like after all of that, he put it on, he listened to half a track and he threw it in the swimming pool. He was like, not good enough. We got to go back and keep recording. And they convinced him not to, and it all worked out, and the rest is history. Yeah. But, like, he was a driven son of a bitch, yep, yep. and everything else came second, yep. which to me is what I find really compelling. And to me, that's, the that's, story- that's what these kind of movies engage people with. Is it's yes. always about driven, ambitious people, and that's why you watch them. And it's about this guy softening and learning to appreciate the people in his life. Yep. It's about a very driven, very ambitious man who has somewhere he wants to be, and at all costs, you know, that's the only thing he's focused on. And as he goes on, he kind of realizes that- these people have supported him and these people do love him. It's not just all about him. And he sort of learns to appreciate and care for the people in his life and learns that they can actually help him and they can actually help him because they love him and he needs to love them in return. Have you thought for Springsteen, he's really tall and lean. Um, Lee Pace. Oh, yeah. I could say. He might be a – oh, yeah, put him in the right wig. But might be a bit too skinny. Yeah, that's all I was Because Springsteen was only really skinny in, like, the 70s. And then he got- like, because he kind of buffed out during yeah. the Born in the USA era, and he sort of stayed that way for the rest of his career. Yeah, it's Fassbender. What, what am I doing? Yeah. Because he wasn't – the thing is, like, he's known to be quite rugged, but, like, he wasn't really rugged, like, in the – on the edge of town, Born to Run time mm. times. But, um, yeah, in terms of music as well, um, not sure about after the Nebraska segment, when him and Steve Van Zandt are planning Nebraska. After the Tunnel of Love segment, it'll be Valentine's Day, which is one of the – most beautiful songs he's ever written and kind of like sad and melancholic and fantastic. And then of course, end with the rising, which is just like a great rousing show stopping end song. That'd be the only time he actually performs in the film. You'd never play that in the USA. Yeah. Why? Yep. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like all the thing is like, you know, like, you know, structuring it where every bit is set before an album, all those albums sort of have stories behind them. Yeah. And look, these scenes don't necessarily tie into what the stories of the albums were, but like, it's not necessarily like the Born to Run bit is tying into what Born to Run was about. It's more what happened behind the scenes. You know, Born yep. to Run, it was all about the fact that he basically drove himself to the edge of insanity to get this album done and almost alienated everyone in his life. Darkness, Darkness on the Edge of Town, you've got the whole lawsuit angle, yep. which was huge. That 80s, like, and like I've read transcripts of like him in court with Apple and he was ferocious. Yep. Like, you know, we all know Bruce Springsteen is like quite lovable and endearing, but then like you read these like court transcripts and it's him just like spewing out like these profanity laden rants about what a fucking cunt Mike Apple is and all of this wow. stuff. It's insane. And then, you know, um, Isaac. Oscar, it's, it's and, Oscar Isaac. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, you know, Nebraska had the huge thing with um the fact that it was the first, you know, he actually recorded these demos and half the demos ended up going on and becoming the Born the USA songs. And the other half, he just released as they were. Like literally he recorded them over a weekend yeah. and just released those as the demo tapes, as an album. It's like one of his most acclaimed albums. So yeah. Nebraska's the acoustic album. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I don't it's love beautiful. Nebraska, but it's- I like it. Yeah. A lot of people really do. It's not- It's me in my good place. It's one of those things where you sort of like- was it Dusha said about it that was like, he was like, oh, you know, born, born to Run is like you sit there and you feel a lot of feelings. Nebraska's like you sit there on a rainy night with a glass of scotch, thinking about that man you killed 10 years ago. Like, <laughs> so, something like that. It's so accurate. It's uh, so true. It's like, such it's an just, accurate it's, description. It's, a, it's not an album you listen to if you want to feel good about anything in the world ever. Yeah, so but that's amazing. But it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an album that makes you 
Oh, it definitely has a reaction. Feel. Definitely makes you feel things. I haven't seen Steve Jobs, so maybe fill me on how they do this. But from that pitch, Gabe, I mean, it does. It sounds like a play. Yes. Even though it works as a film, but how would you? How would a filmmaker sort of take what is essentially these twenty-minute blocks of conversation and do it in like a dynamic, in a cinematic way? Well, watch Steve Jobs. Yeah, watch Steve Jobs. <laughs> basically, um, I think it's like Steve Jobs was interesting because, like, for example, um, I think. I'm not sure if I'm right or not, but like the color grading was slightly different between all three parts. Okay, like yeah. it was a bit like grainier and sort of more, I don't know if that's color grading or not, whatever visuals. Um, it was sort of like grainier and kind of more eighties in the first part and sort of became like, you know, started to look Were more modern as it went jobs. on. So it was yeah, basically like, it was yeah, the IMAX. So it was the first Mac that he made back in the eighties. Then okay. it was the weird IQ like educational computer, educational thing. computer that he made that didn't actually function, but looked really good. Okay. And then the last segment is when he produces the, that iMac in the early 2000s, okay, cool. 90s. Yeah, I think which so. Which is the clear yep. one with the color backing on it. So the color grading is just going for like different times. Yeah, and then like so. they do a lot of like really cool visual stuff with the montage because they do montages between every bit to kind of tell what's happening, which again, I blatantly ripped the off. new yeah. stuff that, yeah, yeah. And they do really interesting things with that. And also like Steve Jobs kind of plays a bit with flashback as well. So there are certain moments you see in flashback and kind of cuts between the conversations. And the conversations are like quite – because it's backstage. It's sort of a bit like Birdman. You know how it kind of follows the characters sure. like around backstage as they're talking. So it's a lot like it's, that. So If Birdman directed Aaron, – if Aaron Sorkin wrote Birdman and it was about a guy who invented a computer. I would do – I would do a few things like – because, you know, for example, the last chunk isn't like a one-room, one-scene bit of dialogue. It's – um. It's, you know, it's actually yeah, a bit it's more, a sequence, it's yeah. a bit of a sequence. And then, for example, you know, you have, um, so that one would be tricky to do on stage. Yeah. And then you have like the bit with him and Patty where they're walking. That's like my before sunrise segment. Yeah. Where it's like, there would just be a lot of the two of them just walking along, talking about life and kind of reflecting and like, you know, and I give her a lot to say as well, because like, I, I hate those films where it's just like the usually male protagonist sitting there kind of spouting all of his demons and everyone else kind of falling yeah, some line around. Those it, demons like, are really terrible. And like, and oh, like they are, but at a certain point, you're like, why do people? It's like watching Garden State and being like, why is everyone listening to this guy? Yeah, everybody else kind of has to have their stuff too. So I mean, especially too, if he ends up with her, you want to know why? Yeah, and I want to know who she is. Yeah. I, I like the idea. So, I'm a, I, I love a good rambling story that doesn't seem to have a point, but then comes. But back then to does a point like Fargo and any Coen Brothers film ever has those bits where someone yeah. will tell you a story, and you're like. What the fuck? And that's why I want to give her something like that and make it. And like you said, like I've Patty Sealf from like what you see of her, like she's quite a she's quite a funny sort of happy go lucky type person. And I'd love her to have this like big, absurdly ridiculous story. And as as I was kind of telling, I kind of see it more clearly. Like it's probably like maybe when she was a kid and there was something she really wanted, and her like not giving up and everyone saying, you know, that's stupid, that's stupid. And it could be something totally superfluous. It's her being like, yeah, but I wanted it. I couldn't help the fact that I wanted it. Yeah. It was what it was. And the only way I was going to kind of be happy is if I got it. And everyone's like, oh, you have to learn a lesson that you don't always get what you want. Yeah, screw that. That's, I want what I want. A terrible lesson. Yeah, exactly. Which I think Fuck would be you, really Mick fun. Jagger. And make Fuck it like you, really man. sort of, you know, kooky and funny and sort of have Bruce laughing and have Bruce engaging, kind of showing a bit why he's attracted to her because yeah. she kind of makes him yeah, laugh and crucial. engages him and all, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Are they still together? Yeah. Oh, they nice. had two kids and they're still together and they still perform cool. together. That's a win. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, I just like that everyone lives happily ever after. Yeah, I do. Oh, I really like that. And that they do. Yeah. It's like, you know, he, he came back, he had his comeback for The Rising and, you know, that was huge, yeah. like, which is rare for like a rocker, like yeah. in his 50s to come back and have like a big album. But The Rising did really well. Do you know the only other person who almost did it was when Bon Jovi released Have a Nice Day? Oh, yeah. That's about it. He didn't do anything for like years. And then he came back and he did the world tour and he did Have a Nice Day. And it, went it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But at like, all, though. I think because Springsteen came in, and the reason it's so special because he came in for nine eleven, and that story about the guy being like, "We need you right now." That's true. That happens. That's, can that I just happens. say that story? I would be watching 
that film, and at that point, there would possibly be a single tear roll down. My yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just oh, this guy being like, you got to watch. Um, you got to watch a film. Uh, I mean, probably don't because it's it's even to me as a huge Springsteen fan, I find it a little bit too much. There's a movie called Springsteen and I. And it's basically it's interspersed with like lots of like rare concert footage, which is really cool. But it's basically just a bunch of like Springsteen fans from around the world who film themselves talking about what he means to them. And some of them are really funny and interesting. Some of them are downright weird. Some of them are really moving. There's a lot of tears. But like it's one of those things where like I watch as somebody who's like madly passionate about Bruce, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? As kind of overblown as it is, I get it. I guess I ought to get yeah, it. You're in it, aren't you? <laughs> I actually Gabe, could have been. Because they put a call out for people to did you apply submit? for it. I didn't submit. Oh, Gabe. That's, I did not submit. And There's I reckon I would have got in. I reckon a... I totally would have got in if I'd submitted. Because I would have spoken so passionately and I probably would have teared up. And it would have been... Anyway. What could have been? I really like Bruce Springsteen, guys. Um, Outside of Danny Boyle, who directs your movie? Oh, man. Um, Maybe Richard Linklater. Okay. Yeah, like yeah, no, yeah, because he does really well with. I mean, this is like this is, and I make no bones about it. And I'm sorry to the people listening, but this is an art house talk fest. Yeah. This is absolutely an art house talk fest. I make no bones about that. And Richard Linklater has a beautiful talent for making art house talk fests not feel like plays. Yeah, like actually feel like dynamic cinematic experiences, which is a good thing about Steve Jobs because it didn't feel like a play. Like you're watching it, it's like you could adapt this for the stage quite easily. Yeah. Well, Sorkin was a film. Out as a play oh, yeah, and it shows. Yeah. But it's – and he's got that very distinctive sort of theatrical dialogue, which I love. Well, yeah, Richard Linklater. What do you use in the end credits song? Probably The Rising just because it will okay. probably just keep playing. It's like yeah. you're the end credits. And The Rising always leaves you with a good feeling. Okay. Would you even get through most of the song? Like, would it just be the start of the song? Like he doesn't even get it. Like do you know what would be interesting? Because this, this could then help you if the actor can't fucking sing. Yeah, right. I've never heard The just Rising. Before he sings Is it like cover. a build up? No, it actually starts with the it, – like it Just singing there's like There's like one note and he starts singing. All right. Yeah. I was going to say, oh, you'd just be like, you know, we're here today. He doesn't even sing, right? We're here today, da, da, da. No, no, no. And he look, sort of looks around just before he's about to start. And he's like, yeah, I'm good. And then you just hear the note and then bank credits. So you don't ever have to yeah, see that. Yeah, yeah. If you can't get an actor who can Well, you could use a different song. It doesn't have to be The Rising. I think, I think no, The Rising's... That one, that works, I mean, it's I right because I think it yeah. suits the story. And on top of that, it also suits that particular moment, which, yeah, which, was such a, which was such a pivotal moment in his career, was him coming out of semi-retirement... For an event, because well, this, this is the thing that's happening, and then he and then he like started recording consistently after that. Because like in the nineties, he released two albums in like ninety two that were, one of them was like an album of like unreleased Be material, science, basically, yeah. and the other one was sort of a new album. It was just about how happy his life was, mm. and they bombed because like the whole the whole like one of the songs there is Better Days, which is literally just about the fact that he's like, my life is good now. And like he later said, nobody people were like, why that. don't you ever write happy songs, Springsteen? He goes, well, I tried writing happy songs in the 90s and nobody liked it. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> and then he like released Ghost of Tom Joad in 95, which was another like spared, you know, paired back acoustic album. Yeah. And then, I th- you know, he did Streets of Philadelphia, Ooh, yeah. which was just like one song and Dead Man Walking. Good so song, there were a couple though. of singles. Yeah, it's, it's a very good it's song. It's a very good song. What's your but favorite then he song, didn't, yeah? My favorite Springsteen song. Yeah. It's either Thunder Road Ooh. because- that was a song that the moment I heard that I was like, I am in with this guy. I'm yep. going to say Thunder Road for mine. Okay. Thunder Road is pretty beautiful. But the other one, and if there's one thing you take away from listening to this, it's the song Thundercrack. It was a song that didn't make it onto his first album. And it is a rollicking, rampant, joyful good time. Mm-hmm. It is literally a song about how good a dancer his ex-girlfriend was. And it's just him like singing about her. And it's got these amazing lines like, 
like there's one line which I love, which is like, my heart's wood, she's a carpenter. And stuff like that. And it's just this like, it's, it's this really like, when they would perform it live, it would go for like 20 minutes. Like I think the recorded version you can get is like seven or eight minutes long. But when they would record it live, like Springsteen, it was deliberately meant to be really like improvisational. Yeah. And they would just make up shit and just keep jamming. And you listen to it. Like I've got a, um, I've got a record at home that's like his very first radio performances yeah. and he sings Thundercrack and he's stoned off his head while he's singing it. Like he's, he starts off with like this big monologue about like a duck and then a big monologue about like his ex-girlfriend like and how good a dancer she was and then at the last minute he's like oh and she was a really good dancer and actually this song's about her sister. And then just like bursts into Thundercrack. <laughs> and it's like it's just it's the most exuberant song I've ever heard. Like you listen to Thundercrack and you are just having a great time. Thundercrack makes a very compelling case for being my favourite Springsteen song. Basically any Bruce song with thunder in the title is probably going to be my favorite thing ever. I'm very fond of the wrestler. Oh, but that's a beautiful song. It is beautiful. That's you know, like Thunder Road. Yeah, Thunder Road's good. There's a lot. There's there's a lot of good stuff. He's, yeah, I mean, he's there is all of Nebraska. I'm I'm a big Nebraska fan. See, I'm all born to run. Yeah. Like born to run. I if I the only problem I have with Thunder Road is if, if I listen to Thunder Road, I'm going to listen to the whole album. Like. <laughs> That's not really a problem. It's, it hasn't been no. so far. I've had a great time. Like, if I have a spoonful of this Sunday, I'm going to have gonna to eat, eat the whole thing. Sunday and possibly three more. <laughs> it's like Gabe listens to one song and then he's just late to things just constantly. <laughs> I've often seen like how It just many ends springs. up on his iTunes. Oh, yeah. I've got to listen to the whole thing now. <laughs> I have Gabe, often done you like were the- late for your job. How'd you get fired? Thunder Thunder Road. <laughs> now the problem was like if I if I listen, the problem is if I listen to Greetings from Asbury Park, which was his first album, I listen to that and I'm like, I'll listen to the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. Then suddenly I'm listening to like Nebraska. Yep. I'm like, wait, I listened to like how many albums today? <laughs> it's like The Rising. Holy shit! Jeez, wait, what? But then you're just like, yeah, no regrets. Yeah, that's fine. It's he's a weird. It's I'm amazed no one's actually made a film about him before. It's. A stand- and, and the thing is, like, you could- how much of an American cultural icon exactly, he is and and like he's got you know the whole working class background and the difficult relationship with his father, which I'm, I'm not covering because I think that's boring biopic material. Yeah, but you could. I mean, you could make a really conventional. Why are you biopic. not covering it, Gabe? Are you uh, just uh, keeping is it too close to home? Uh, too close to home. It's uh, just mining some demons here, mate. So uh, <laughs> you know, but Gabe, you know the beauty of your idea is that even if someone did come out and do like a standard biopic, yours would still be quite different. Yeah, yeah. I think mine's like reasonably unconventional unless you're comparing it to Steve Jobs, yeah. in which case it's clearly <laughs> it's a ripoff. exactly the same. Yeah, more or less. So do you just go Danny Boyle direct it? So it's like, oh, it's just Danny Boyle doing yeah. what Danny yeah, exactly. Boyle does. It's just like, yeah, no, nah, it's, it's not that the script was like trying to sort of emulate that in any way, shape or form. It's just Danny Boyle style, it's man. It's yeah. a sequel, but now he plays music. Exactly. <laughs> it's a sequel, but it's a now- spiritual sequel. Yes, yeah. I like that. Yeah, go with that. Yeah. It's like how all the step-ups have different people stepping up in them. Yeah, Even though they're all But they all step up. They all Thematically, up. they hold together. Seth Rogen yeah. can be Mike Apple. You know, Jeff Daniels is in there. Jeff Daniels probably plays um, Steve Van <laughs> <laughs> Kate Winslet is uh, Patty C. Alpha. Oh, yeah. man. No, Kate Winslet played Wendy. Yeah. Well, well, well no. No. Especially when she's quite young, but yeah, like, it's going to be also fascinating. I don't mean that offensively. I was like, no, younger. too old. Um, <laughs> Amelia Clark plays Wendy. Yes. I found Amelia Clark in your film. Why not? See, what I was doing, I was like, who could play. Do you know who could play a decent old, an older, older version of Springsteen? Be the actor who plays Jorah Mormont. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I'm on board that because I reckon he's fantastic. Like if you wanted to do two actors, yeah, yeah. just do like all of a sudden Ian we Glenn. jump ahead to like the thing. It's just like bang. You just you can just imagine him being like really. I'm so lost and driving a car and yeah, all right. Hell yeah. I'm yeah, like, I can see that. Do it, Gabe. He's got the gravitas. So if you're going to split it, have a younger actor until the third one. Yeah, and then you know Wendy's Alicia Vikander. 
Yeah, done. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet, not a problem. Army Hammer plays young. Springsteen. No, maybe someone yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> I just I only said that because my problem is as soon as like who should play this, someone suggests another actor, and then I just think of you all just the other people. If Garrett Headlands <laughs> could actually support a film, <laughs> he'd kind of look the part of young Springsteen with with um, Sergio as the old one. I I really think I want to keep one actor. Yeah, yeah I if would you're following this guy's only, journey, is you... it, what is it? A, it's a thirty year thing. Uh, just it's going from 1973 or 74 actually because I hate to it when use two actors and it's like no he wouldn't. It's like, like you sort of though. were following the previous guy, like investing in the previous guy. Yeah, now. It's I'm, like, I'm trying to think. Right. The last time I saw that and it was done well. Can we use Jorah and just age him down to 20? You've got to age him down a fair bit though. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's you know he's with, an older man. Fastbenders, fastbenders fast is a good is middle age. point. You de-age him. Yeah, get fastbender. Or like just what's Vigo Mortensen up to? It's just he's also quite old though. House. He's like sixty. Yeah, Vigo's really yeah. sixty. Yeah, yeah, yeah man. Oh, he's a good actor. He hasn't done anything in a really long time. No, he's done like he does like foreign films and stuff, doesn't he? I reckon the last thing I saw him in was that um, Eastern Promises. Yeah, which is terrific. Great yeah. film. Oh, history of brief history of violence. That was before that. Though. I don't think I've seen. Was that. It really a history of violence? Well, last night. <laughs> <laughs> a brief history. What I've done is I've written by Stephen Hawking's book and just fused it with a Cronenberg film. Well, that, that would be, be something. <laughs> That's, That's your next, next project. Yeah. Done. <laughs> Stephen Hawking meets Cronenberg. That seems like a good uh, yeah. a good point to uh, to put an end to this. Um, and on that note, I've been Gabe. I've been Tom. I've been Sean. Um, and yeah, if you have any ideas, because like we obviously haven't actually figured out a decent pitch for who should play Bruce Springsteen in my in my Aaron Sorkin ripoff. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> If you have any ideas, um, email us in at sanspensradio at gmail.com or on Twitter at sanspensradio. I'm at gobergmoser. I'm at awkwardtreed. And I'm at sidekick of Dowie. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Oh, and, yeah, listen to Thunder Road because you'll just have a probably better time than you had listening to this podcast. What was the other Thunder one? Thundercrack. Thundercrack. If you think this show is worth at least a dollar, why not donate to our Patreon account? Follow the links on our website, sanspantsradio.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.